Well, we all have expectations in our lives that have been built with growing faith as we continue to hear the Word. The idea is that we continue to hear the Word, our faith grows, and so do our expectations. Sunday, we looked at a lot of supernatural, uh, spiritual obstacles that come in the way. And tonight, we take a look at some of the natural obstacles that seem to materialize that hinder our journey toward those expectations. We can find that financial blessing is in the Word, but then our rent and our mortgage increases. Food prices, gas prices go up, or our hours at work begin to take a hit. Maybe you're building your faith in the area of health and hearing, healing, but then the doctor's report comes in, or you just don't feel right. This can affect your hope for what you see the Word promising you. So what is a believer to do? Well, we're going to see here in Numbers chapter 10 that they face a couple of these obstacles. And actually, as we get to the end of this, we're going to summarize and look at a lot of things that the uh, folks here have faced in these uh, last couple of chapters and how that ties into some of the natural expectations, hindrances to our expectations. Last week, we looked at, well, actually two weeks ago, we looked at true repentance is not just about acknowledging our sins. It's more about recognizing and being mindful of who God is, His mercy, and the good he has done despite our unfaithfulness. So some things come to us from God through his mercy. Some are because we are in covenant. But the best that God has to offer comes to us as his blessings, which he does as a reflection on how pleased he is with us. That pleasing is not based on production. It's not based on the size of our gifts, even how hard we work for him. They can be a factor, but what always catches his eye the most is the right attitude of heart. And we pick up here at Nehemiah 10 with everyone's favorite types of lists of names. But we have them. Let's begin at verse 1. Now, those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hilkaliah, and Zedekiah, it is supposed that it may be a, a, a scribe of his because of the placement of the name. Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkajah, Hatush, Shabaniah, Maluk, Herim, Meramath, Obadiah, Daniel, Genathan, Baruch, Mashalam, Abijah, Majeben, Meziha, Dogai, and Shemaiah, these were the priests. So the priests get on the document here. These are the heads of the priestly houses. And they attach their seals next. And among these, the high priest, the house of Sariah, was uh, the first one noted. So these are the houses of the priests. There's also obviously a lot more in number than just the uh, names of the houses. Verse 9, the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, the son of Hanadad, and Cadmiel, their brethren, Shabaniah, Hodajah, Kalita, Paliah, Hanan, Makah, Rahab, Hashaban, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shabani, Hadadan, Banai, and Benu. Now Jeshua, Benu, and Kedavai represent the three chief families of the returned Levites. So they represent, again, another household. To seal a covenant in the Old Testament, this involves a blood cutting between two people. 
or a sacrificial cutting if it's between God and man. You see the best example of that in Genesis chapter 15. I'll read a few of the verses here in verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. If you read the rest of the story, you see that uh, later on, while he was in a somewhat of a sleep or trance, uh, the Lord came and passed through the pieces. And this was the symbolizing of the cutting of the covenant with them. Obviously, God doesn't bleed. Now, they are sealing the documents here with their seals. So they would take their family seal and they would put it on the document that had all the names on it. Verse 14, the leaders of the people, Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zetu, Benai, Benu, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Altir, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodonijah, Hashem, Bazil, Harif, Anatath, Nebai, Megpesh, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Haloshesh, Pilah, Shebok, Jaham, Hashbana, <clears throat> Messiah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Malok, Maharim, and Benai. These are more of the listers that are related here. There is detail to uh, to some of these as they were previously named, but I would pretty much just lose you in the detail and it wouldn't really change anything for our our uh, application here where we're getting at with this. Verse 28, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nathanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes. Now these had no leadership responsibilities, but joined in putting their seal and stand with others. Now, it didn't mean that they are nobody just because they didn't have any leadership capabilities. They had no leadership capabilities in regards to the temple service or regards to the land's government. That doesn't mean they were nobodies. How many of y'all know there's a whole lot of uh, somebodies that are not in governmental service or in temple service? So don't think these are just the offshoots while there's no other job for them. No, they just weren't involved in those two activities, but there's plenty of other activities. There's a lot of businesses to run. There's a lot of things to be doing in, in there, and they were probably more substantially involved in those things, which there was nothing wrong with with that happening. But anyway, uh, sometimes we look at this tail end of the list and you just say, well, these are just, you know, who cares about him, them? No, they could have had great influence in what was going on there. could have been that they were uh, more well off than some of the other people. Maybe they were helping to supply the money to build the wall or to uh, do some of the things in the temple that other people couldn't do. Verse 30. Here's what they're committing to. And this often was done. We saw this at least once with Moses where he gathered all the people and they all began to recite the, the law and what would happen if they didn't do it. And they went to uh, go this way. And there, a few times in their history, I believe that they had done this. But here they're doing this again and they're committing themselves to some of the things in the Word. Let's take a look at what they're committing to. First thing was off. We, will, we would not give 
Yeah, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons, that the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day. We would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and exacting of every debt. Whole lot packed in here. Let's take a look at these. First off, there was this was something that they had fallen into, and Ezra had to deal with it when he came in. That was uh, several decades before this, uh, about taking the foreign wives for their sons. Here they commit that they're, uh, they would not give their wives to the people of the land either. Now they're making a commitment to not do what was done in the past. They know this had been done. Not only did Ezra deal with it, but also many other times in Israel's history was this dealt with. All the way back even to Moses when they were wandering in the wilderness, they had to deal with it a few times. In these days, now the young men and the young woman they don't pick their spouses. Mom and dad do. And so they are the ones that are making the commitment to not pick spouses for their daughters and their sons that would not be uh, God-fearing. didn't necessarily mean they had to be of Jewish descent. It just meant they had to be serving God. Many times we see in the Word where people who were not born of Jewish descent were still brought in and allowed to marry into the uh, Jewish family as long as they had served their gods. And you can think of a number of examples of that in the in the Word of God. Uh, Moses was one of those who did that. I believe Ruth and some others. Now, Nehemiah observes the people of such mixed marriages with the Philistines in Numbers chapter 13. So this is something that's, that's still upcoming. But they're making this commitment to it. It would seem, at least likely impossible, that from Ezra's time when he dealt with it that they had fallen back into it. And they were making a, a commitment again. We won't do this because they had made a commitment with Ezra. Now they're making a recommitment about uh, not doing this from this point forward. Now honoring the Sabbath day is much easier in a nation whose laws honor it. Living where the laws and people don't makes it difficult. But they commit to doing so in the area of buying and selling. Now, there's probably other areas that they could commit to, but this is the ones that they're making mention of. We will not sell and we will not buy on the Sabbath day. Now, compare this to the state of the temple in Jesus' day. Not only are they buying and selling, they're doing so in the temple. So, somewhere along the lines, this commitment obviously did not last. In Numbers 13, we'll see that Nehemiah will carry out some very stringent re- regulations regarding the Sabbath, but that's um, not for today. They talk about the land Sabbaths. Not honoring the land Sabbaths was one of the things that got them into trouble and what the 70-year exile was based around. The land wanted its rest, but they made it work. So God gave the land its rest. Now they're in a different situation. See, before they were able to govern themselves and determine whether the land would have rest or not, and they determined that it would not. Now they are not governing themselves. They have a foreign king who does not serve God nor honor the law of God. So what are you to do? Those kings are going to demand their part of that seventh year harvest. If they make a commitment to not sow the land for the seventh year, that it could create a problem. The governor of the land was merely someone that the king hired to do his work out there. So he was, one of his jobs was to collect the taxes. 
and then send them on in. So if the seventh year, he's not collecting uh, as much taxes as he did before because all the land is at rest, that certainly is going to bring attention. And how are they going to do with committing to this? I don't really find anything in history that tells me how well they did, whether they did any better this time than when they were in the land before. But you can see that they had a hindrance. They had a they had an obstacle. They had something they had to get past. We have a lot of those kind of things that we have to do today. But they made a commitment. As they are in this land, they would have other people. Again, they don't control this. They would have other people who would come in the land. Uh, might be some of the Philistines. Uh, they're, they're mentioned later on. But they're going to come in. They're going to set up carts and they're going to begin to sell things. And so they're making a commitment. We won't buy things on the Sabbath day. And we won't sell things on the Sabbath day. So you, you see people, companies today, not too many of them will follow this. We did have one that did, and that was Chick-fil-A. And they came into a lot of popularity because they did it. Now, initially, when they had done this, it was because of their God-fearing principles, and they had a lot of things that they did in the business side that reflected that as well. Uh, they have since fallen from some of that, and they're not nearly as... Uh, uh, strong against those conservative things as they are supporting those security of conservative things as before. But they are holding to the Sunday rule. I think the main reason they hold to the Sunday rule is because it's profitable for them. They have found that people respect the idea that they don't want to have the things going on on Sunday and so they're making probably more money days one through six than if they opened up on day seven. And that's probably right. Um, I'm not a big customer of theirs. I just don't like the food. But uh, I do like the stance of closing on Sunday and not having the workers have to choose between those things. But for these these folks, it, it may have been a tough a tough deal. Now, if any of you are familiar with some of the towns around uh, around Jersey, some of the towns is specifically Ocean City is the one I'm familiar with. But there's a few other towns along the coast. Some of them still hold to it a little bit longer than Ocean City did. But they had what they called were blue laws in which no place was allowed to be open on Sundays to do business. I believe even for a while the beach was closed, but I, I think that fell away pretty quickly. Uh, you were not allowed to sell alcohol in the place or serve it or carry it onto the beach. In fact, actually, you weren't even allowed to bring it into the city. Some of those things got lessened as time went on. They had the uh, uh, beer thing locations opened up on two of the bridges going in so that you could buy it and carry it in, uh, but you still weren't allowed to have it out on the beach. If you had it out on the beach, it would be confiscated or something would be redone with that. A uh, big difference, though, if you walked on the beach in Ocean City and you walked on the beach in Wildwood, there's a lot of broken glass on the beach in Wildwood. There was no broken glass on the beach in Ocean City, probably from the lack of the beer bottles that would uh, be going on there. But the, the year came... I was uh, delivering down there at the time, and so I was kind of involved much more so than I would have been otherwise. And the uh, person who took over governing the city did not like the blue laws. And so he decided the best way to get rid of the blue laws was to enforce them 100%. So they started to close down a lot of the businesses that were there and uh, just enforced all the things that were on there until the people got tired of them. They liked the kind of slack nature of the blue laws that were there and not the full enforcement. So when they did that, then they were able to vote out many of the blue laws. Uh, some of them still state, uh, you are allowed to bring alcohol into the city now. 
Um, I'm not sure if they can serve it yet at the restaurants. If so, I'm not familiar with any restaurant that has served it. Uh, but uh, everything can be open now on Sunday and so forth. It's a tough thing to commit. No, nope, I'm not going to do this on Sunday or on the, whatever the Sabbath day for them. It was Saturday. I won't, uh, I won't be, be carrying those things out. But this is what they committed to. And it's all fine and good until you find out, oh, you know what? I need that today. Tomorrow will be too late. And here's a Philistine selling it. Well, maybe one time. <laughs> there are hindrances there. They didn't have those, those things before. They didn't have those temptations because the, the nation was governed by the laws that supported the Mosaic law. Now we also notice here in verse, the next verse coming up, that the practice of lending upon a pledge had begun again. Despite all the stuff that was made about it before and their commitment to not do it, we come to verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to extract, to exact for ourselves yearly one third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Whoop, I somehow missed my, oh there it was in the end of 31. And we forgo the seventh year's produce and exacting of every debt. So just those last lines there, they recommit to to that debt pledge that they had had before. Verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to ex- exact from ourselves nearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. This is a self-imposed third shekel tax that was offered for the temple service. Up until then, in Exodus chapter 30, I gave you, I think, no, I didn't give you the reference for that. But it's Exodus 30, 13 through 16, if you want to write it down, there was a half shekel tax on the tax on the sanctuary, as it was called, and it was only parable on the rare and forbidden occasion of a census of the whole people. So, if a census of the whole people was taken, if God had ordered it, or there was some good reason for it, then also there was a uh, payable half shekel in the sanctuary. Now, this probably did not serve for the regular support of the temple, while the Jews were an independent nation. Because they had a very rich king who could help support the temple. So they didn't need this. So it was just on occasion that it was thrown out. But a governor was not like a king. And he would be replaced if he didn't do what was asked. And sending the tax money, of course, was a big part. So he has to send that tax money over there. He can't keep any of it for temple service. So they had to come up with another way to finance this. So this is one of the things they came up with. Now, in determining that, you've got to take a look at how much does the temple need and what what kind of means do the people have. And so from that, you come and they determine something that is doable for the people without being burdensome, but still getting the job done of what they needed to do. Now, it was under these circumstances and likely connection with the immediate need that the idea is proposed and paid. It was paid annually. You paid it once a year by all the adult males for the support of the service and included the sacrifice, the incense, the showbread, the red heifers, the scapegoat, numerous victims and numerous meat and drink offerings required on various occasions and especially at each of the great festivals. It was felt that the provision in the law ruled for two things. First, in determining the amount, they looked at the temple's existing need compared to what everyone had available to them. Now, they determined a third of a shekel was sufficient at the time, but at some point they returned to the standard fixed by the law. You find that in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Remember when they came after Peter? 
do you guys not pay the temple tax? So that apparently was back in play, and Jesus told him how they were going to pay it. Numbers 10.33, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering on the Sabbath, the new moons and the set feast of the, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Now you can just read through that real quick, but let's take a look at what this, this is. The cost of the showbread is mentioned first, though it's probably not as high as the other two things. There's no more than 12 cakes of fine flour weekly. And you find that in Leviticus 24, 5 through 8, if I didn't put that in your outline for you. It's probably on account of its importance being the bread of God's presence and the type of sacramental bread of the new covenant, why this is mentioned first. But here we get into the really expensive one. This is the regular burnt offerings. I'm going to read this passage for you from Numbers 28, 3 through 10. And you shall say to them, this is the offering made by fire which you offer to the Lord. All right, this is the regular burnt offering. They did this on a regular basis. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. So every day they offered these two. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hint of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hin for each lamb. In a holy place you shall pour it out to the drink to the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year Without blemish, and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil and with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath beside the regular burnt offering, which is its drink offering. So this is going on every day. Every day you're offering this kind of a sacrifice. Sabbath, it changes a little bit. That's a lot more substantial cost than the showbread. It's not as big a deal when the nation was larger and you had a king who would help uh, supply it. But now the nation is smaller there is no king to help make up any any uh, uh, monies that are needed to get this done. So it's a lot more of a burden for them to keep this going. And I'll tell you, once something that you do regularly becomes a burden, now you begin to d- determine, well, do we really need to do it that way? And we're not given any of that, but I'm sure that they went through some of these things. Well, do we really need to do two, two every day? Yeah, but if we do one one day, one another day, you know, that'll cut the cost in half, but we're still doing the, the thing. I don't know if they went through any of that. We have to wait till we get to heaven and watch the videotape. But in verse 34, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God. Now, how many never heard of a wood offering? <laughs> yeah, there's a good reason for that. According to our Father's house at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Now, the... Like we said, this is probably a new one for you. This is the earliest recording of the practice. It did occur before this, but this is the earliest recording of it. It is during the second temple period that we hear about this ritual or festival of bringing wood to the temple. Now, since it's not in the Word, it took me extensive study to figure out where all this stuff came from. And I'll share a little bit of that with you because I'm sure I will bore you with the details. Nehemiah calls it a ritual 
But Josephus describes it as a festival. Now, unlike Josephus, and I do not think I'll get the name of this right, but the Magilat Tanit, Tanit, something of that nature. Nehemiah provides no one date for this offering. Now, that's another historical writing, just with a really funny name. The text, though, in it states it is performed at set times throughout the year. So Josephus looks at more of a festival. This one is looking at set times throughout the year. So it didn't have to be in all in a particular month. They could be scattered, but there were set times, say in the second month, the fourth month, the sixth month, whatever it might be. They would have set times for, for bringing the wood offering. This wood offering was done to keep the fire burning. You all know if you've ever had to maintain a fire in a home, it takes a lot of wood and it takes a lot of planning. It doesn't just happen. And in my house, I'm the one who plans for all this. So we have to make sure in the fall that we have enough wood set aside to get us through the course of the uh, the year, which is generally somewhere around four cords of wood. We get in two cords at a time. We had different places that we haul it to. I have one place that's a little more sheltered, another place that I can put a covering over, and a third place where most of it goes that I don't care too much about. Now we just leave it out there in the open. Whenever rain comes in, I have to make sure which pile am I pulling from. Do I pull from the far out pile? I put some of it into the into the wood into the shed that we have back there, and this way it keeps it dry. I have some that's under the covered porch, and I have some that's under a, another covering, and I have to all throughout the year. All right, well, when snow comes, this is the one we pull it from. When rain comes, this is the one we can pull it from. It's not so so bad. But as long as it's sunny, we go from the further one. And you try and balance this thing on out so that you always have dry wood inside. And so whenever rain comes in, like rain was coming in for today, so I made sure this morning we uh, had everything on the inside loaded up. I got all the covered spots filled up with, with stuff. So I got enough to run us for three, four, five days, never having to tap into any of the wet piles of wood without any problem. Probably, probably even go longer than that. But there's a lot of planning. So when I, when I hit something like this, I know what's involved, planning. Oh, can I, I cannot imagine what it's like to keep a fire burning like that because their fire is bigger all year long. We're going at it for, you know, three months strong and occasionally, you know, a little more in the other, other months. That's a lot of wood to haul in. What accentuates the problem is during the days of the king, there were a lot more forests in the land of Judah. After the captivity, and because of some of the wars and things that had gone through, the uh, forests had been decimated. And so there was not a whole lot of wood growing around here. Now it becomes more challenging. Now you've got to go out and find the wood and bring it in. Plus they all have wood needs of their own. That's their main source of heat for the months that they would need need heat. I know they don't need it all the time, but they would need it for some. So this is, is quite a strain. So you're taking a product that you need that is not very common in the land that you now live. You have to go out and find it. And then you're going to take some of that and bring it to the temple for them to burn. So this is the this is what they're up against. Now the Mishnah this is uh, the oldest authoritative post-biblical collection and codification of Jewish oral laws. I just read that to you as it is written about it. Systematically compiled by numerous scholars. If you want to know, they are called Tanaim over a period of about two centuries. The codification was given final form in the early 3rd century A.D. by Judah Ha-Nisi. The Mishnah supplements the written 
or scriptural laws found in the Pentateuch. It presents various interpretations of selective legal traditions that have been preserved orally since at least the time of Ezra around 450 B.C. Intensive study of the Mishnah by subsequent scholars in Palestine and Babylonia resulted in two collections of interpretations and annotations of it called the Gemara, that one may not be as familiar to you, or the Talmud, that one is probably more familiar to you. In the broader sense of the latter terms, the Mishnah and the Gemara together make up the Talmud. I'm sure you're all riveted by all that, but it does help us to know where all this stuff comes from. The Mishnah, which lists nine different days throughout the year for bringing wood to the temple, five of which occur in the month Av, may even reflect the midpoint between the vision periodic wood bringing in Nehemiah and a festival wood bringing in Josephus. So somewhere between what the Mishnah recorded and what Josephus recorded when he went to a festival, you went from a ritual where there were about nine days that this was done to where Josephus saw it and wrote about it and this became a festival in which during this week all this wood was brought. On the final day of the of Josephus' festival is when anyone could participate. But in all the days of the festival before that, certain families had this day, certain families had this day, certain families had this day and they would bring this wood on in. The final day was uh, attributed to that family I told you about and on that day... If you had not participated and wanted to participate in the wood offering, then you would come on the final day. And so it was made a big festival and it was even given a name. And now I can't find it. It's a really cool little name too. Um, there it is. Xyloforia. I don't know where that all came from, but um, that's how that, that all came in. The basis for this is in Leviticus 6, 12 through 13. Let me just read this for you. Don't believe it's up on the screen. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it, and he shall burn it, burn it, the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. That's the ordinance that they were trying to, to continue on. All right, let's continue on with our reading here. Verse 35. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God. Now the first fruit, first fruits of all fruit, these were required not merely of wheat and other grain, but also of wine. I'm sorry, of uh, yeah, wine and oil. The things, the produce of the vine. Any other fruit trees. These were all in that list that the first fruits that would come from them, you would bring to God. The giving of these was an act of faith because you're giving the first fruits anticipating that the rest of the fruits will come. If the rest of the fruits don't come, that makes those first fruits far more valuable. So that's why it was an act of faith. You take the first things that came off, you bring them to the Lord. This is, this is His offering. And then you look for the rest. So before you take care of your own needs, you take care of bringing that offering to the Lord. The firstborn child was to be redeemed. He was not offered. Now from the wording here, this practice had ceased. 
They were not bringing the first fruits. They were not redeeming the firstborn son. They were not offering a sacrifice the firstborn of the cattle. So they are committing themselves to doing this. We will bring the first fruits. We will do what God told us in this. To bring the first fruits, verse 37, of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. The first fruits of our dough, if you care for it, this is Numbers 15, 18 through 21. And our offerings, these would be the heave offerings, Numbers 15 and 20. The store chambers attached to the temple building described in Nehemiah 13, 4 and 5. That's still ahead for us. The tithes of the land, as with the law of the first fruit, so it seems that the times, the tithes were going to be a burdensome, and they had grown up and probably had neglected a lot of these tithes, if they had honored any of them at all. Now, the natural result would be the non-attendance of the Levites. So if you stop bringing these tithes in, the Levites don't get the things they need to take care of their family. So they probably went out and found other work and didn't uh, become Levites. And we ran into some of those issues as we covered uh, the people that came over as far as the Levites and the priests. Don't need to get into that again. But you need a certain amount of Levites, you need a certain amount of priests to keep that temple going. And so they're making a commitment to bring these particular tithes in so that the support of the Levites and the priests would, would continue to go on. Now, the Levitical tithe was not taken to Jerusalem, but stored up in a neighboring Levitical city. So they may have brought it into Jerusalem, but they, it didn't stay there. The Levitical tithe would be carried over to the uh, Levitical city. Uh, there was, it may have been several. It may have been one in particular, but that's where it was taken. Verse 38, And the priest the descendant of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the rooms of the storehouse. So the reason they do this is the Levites were the ones who were receiving the tithes from the people because they did this, the, the regular daily work with the people. The priests were involved in the priestly work of the temple, the sacrifices and other things that only the priests could do. So the Levites took up all this. But it says here, a priest must be present when the Levites take this particular tithe. Not all the tithes, but this particular tithe. Because the priests were supposed to get a tithe of the tithe. So 10% of that that came in was to go to the priests. The 90% was to go to the Levites. Well, there's more Levites than there are priests. So the priests got a smaller portion of it. So what would happen is the priests would be there and they would see what would come in. They could record it. They could do whatever they wanted to. And then the Levites would take it on. But now it's a matter of record. And both beneficiaries would see it. So at least one had to be be present. It's probably just to make note of what all was brought in so the Levites would uh, stay honest maybe. <laughs> I don't know. So this uh, this was brought to, to Jerusalem. The people would bring it to Jerusalem. The Levites would take it from Jerusalem over to the, the particular city. The uh, Verse 39, For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, the priests were not allowed to take the offering to the Levitical cities. The priests were not allowed to do this work. 
This was the work of the Levites. And it's very specifically mentioned when the law is laid down on this. Now, the first fruits and other obligations of the people were brought to the temple by the people themselves. So the people would bring their offerings to the temple. The Levites would take the offerings of the sacrifice and they would carry from there. The priests aren't involved in this part of it. As we said, the tithe of the tithe was the priests do, but they didn't carry that either. That was all taken out to the Levite cities, but they know how much went out there. This way, the priests would not be drawn away from their duty of ministering in the temple by the secular employments or matters that were uh, not part of their priestly business. All right, let's wrap this thing up here. One of the most important things we can learn here from these folks in Nehemiah, and we've gone over it before, you can't change what was done, and no action in the present or future will alter the past. But we can change what happens in the future and what decisions we choose to make and carry out. Trying to make up for the errors of the past or having governing authorities putting obstacles in our way to obey God can make our faith expectations become lessened. So it made me ask this question, what are natural things that lessen our faith expectation? What are some natural things for this? There are some scriptures there, and I didn't bother copying them down in mine, but you can read these later on. These these deal with laying the, aside the past. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and Philippians 3, 13 through 15. These are scriptures that are well known by you. But we have to lay aside the things of the past and press forward to the things that are ahead. The enemy is constantly trying us to not press forward, but to look at the past. The enemy wants you to make up for your past. God wants you to recognize your past and move on to the future. That's one of the biggest difference from that because trying to make up for your past will always keep you in the past and always keep you under bondage because how do you know you ever did enough to overcome? God says, forget what's in the past. Now it's time for you to move on to the future. Paul was one of the best on this. His past, how is he going to make up for all that? He had to lay it aside. He just had to say, I can't make up for that, but I will remember it and I will make sure I don't fall into that again. And he just pressed on and did what was what was needed. So I made a list of five things here. First thing here that I saw that would hinder us. And we have covered this before when Nehemiah was teaching. And uh, quoting from Ezra, the joy of the Lord is our strength. But here's the first one. Contrition. Unrestrained sorrow will not bring change. Some people who, they keep going over the past and sorrowing over the past. Like you saw with the the teaching with Ezra. You've got to let go of the past sorrow. You've got to get into the place of rejoicing. And then the joy joy of the Lord will be your strength. That's an important thing to note. But here, if you stay with this, if you keep feeling sorrow about the past, about what you didn't do, about what your ancestors did do, Maybe something that you did do. If you'll just leave, all it will do is leave you longing for it, effectively draining you of the energy and joy and, or the energy, joy and hope bring to create and sustain lasting change. You'll never get into lasting change because you keep being hung up and dragged into the past. Here's the second one. Retribution. 
I put this as undisciplined focus will not bring productive change. Obedience is from the present forward. Unless God asks for it, making up for past disobedience and neglect by ourselves or others is a tool the enemy will use to keep you from obeying now. Think of these folks who are committing themselves to tithing. If they're committing themselves to, to bringing a tithe that they had not brought before, what's the first thing you would begin to think about? What about what you didn't pay? What about all the years of disobedience? Let's first make up for that. And that's wrong. People often ask, will ask you, they come, well, if I start tithing, do I have to make up for everything in the past? That'll keep you in such bondage you'll never get into obedience. You just need to get to a point, Father, I'm sorry, I, I should have been doing it this way. I'm ask for forgiveness, but I am going to do this from here on out. And then you just pick up and obey now. Obedience is the present and forward. It has nothing to do with the past. You cannot make up for what you didn't do. And unless God specifically comes out and says, you need to do this, don't bother with it. you got to just let it go. You'll notice that in all this discourse of all these things that they're committing to, they don't try and make up for the past. You can't make up for the past from what other people did or didn't do, and you can't make it up for yourself. It'll just keep you in bondage. Can you imagine if a person hadn't tithed for five years? And then got recommitted to it. And then the devil got them bondage. You gotta pay back five years for the tithes before you can even start with this. They get so discouraged, they may have tried it for a little while, and then they just give up. And then they're back in disobedience. That's not God. God does not want to put you in a place where you're gonna be forced back into disobedience. He wants to bring you into a place of obedience. So that's the second thing. Retribution. Undisciplined focus. Get your focus disciplined. Be looking at, at what is there. This is what I need to do. All right, I need to take this tithe. I wasn't doing this tithe, the, the, is what they're saying. I wasn't doing the, the field tithe. I wasn't bringing the tithe for the Levites. i got to start bringing that in. And now I'm going to start doing that. Here's my first one. You just got to focus on that. Here's the second one. Submission. But this says, detrimental yieldings will bring negative change. Just as Israel is now in submission to an ungodly king who would make them, uh, who would make things like the seventh year Sabbath difficult. So too our submission to ungodly forces can hinder us from doing what God has said. It can be all kinds of things though. It can be things like addictions to substances, addictions to stimuli, loans that keep our finances in bondage. You know, 30 easy payments. Brother Keith is always real good on, on teaching on that. Friends that influence us away from God. Distractions that occupy our focus. There's a whole lot of quotes I can take out of Brother Hiller's uh, message we list, listened to or that we put out there this week. But here's one I'm going to give you. And I loved how he uh, built the, the story that he built this up with. But you have to know how to possess your vessel so you stay focused. If you haven't heard his, his teaching on that yet, he was using chess as an example. That he's very competitive. And so chess has to be out of his life. Because he can get so wrapped up into the chess that it pulls his focus from the study and preparation and things he needs to be doing. And then it's not good. And he said, that's, I think he also said, that's why he didn't take up golf. <laughs> because of that. Uh, but I like what he said on this. You have to know how to possess your vessel. Just because chess was wrong for him and it would capture him too much doesn't mean that chess is wrong for you. It may not capture you that way. 
you may be able to, to do that and it not rule your life. If you've got something in your life that is ruling your life, uh, then you need to know how to possess your vessel so you can stay focused. I thought that was a great story and a, a great quote. I really enjoyed that. I've been through that teaching three times now. And I still haven't got all of it out of it. I really thoroughly enjoy his approach. I like it when they pack so much into, into one teaching. He really packs a lot into this one. Brother Hagin would teach us about hindrances when we were first going to Raymond. This is one of the first things we had uh, learned from him. And uh, I still remember the day, and I remember all the discussion that he, he created with this. He said, if you depend on anything in the natural, it will hinder your faith. And the first thing he brought up was something that every student didn't want to hear. That was alarm clocks. He said, if you depend on an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning, you will hinder your faith. Boy, I tell you what, the dean got up the next day and he exhorted the congregation. He says, now, if any of you are late for school, you cannot use Brother Hagin as an excuse. <laughs> he said, you tell your spirit you want to get up at whatever time that you need to get up and you set your alarm for 10 minutes after that. Whatever you've got to do. <laughs> he said, but you get here on time because you will still be counted as late. And that was, uh, that was interesting. But he did set me off on that. I always depended on an alarm clock to, to get up. But, of course, I was getting to bed from the restaurant uh, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning on weeknights and on weekends, 3 a.m. in the morning. And getting up for school at 6 a.m. was a little bit tough at times. And so I had my, my watch. That was my alarm clock. And so I would set that. And I remember the, I remember the day still that I had set my alarm for whatever time it was, 6 uh, p.m. instead of a.m. Because, the, you know, on a watch, you only have so much room. And I mistook the p.m. for an a.m. And so at that point in my life, I changed from a.m. p.m. to military time. And I have never changed back. And that was my motivation. That was my reasoning for it. Because you can't get that wrong. So... Um, I have done that, done that, but that was one of the things he would teach us. He also taught us that he also would teach people if you depend on a cup of coffee in the morning to get going, you will hinder your faith. Now he didn't say you're disobeying God. He didn't say you're sinning. He didn't say anything like that at all. He just said you'll hinder your faith. And so we had to just take from that. All right, well, let's, you take one thing at a time. I mean, if you try and take on everything that you find that you depend on, that's uh, that's not going to help out a, a whole lot. But there are a lot of different things that we depend on throughout the day, not just things in the morning. And if you find, boy, that's a, I've got to have that, then maybe it's time to not have that for a little while and just back off on it. And that's what he was, he was teaching us in that. And that's what you'll see here. You get into the wrong submissions, you're going to find that uh, they're going to bring a negative change in your life. You can be submitted to the wrong kind of friends, things that will influence you away from God. You can be influenced by the need to buy things, whatever it might be. Uh, all kinds of stuff can come up. Listen to God. He'll begin to point some things out to you and then just begin to to check them out, change them. For the priest, carrying the offering was a distraction. For the Levites, it was service. See, the same thing that can be a distraction for one person can be a service for another. The inclination to bring aid, help, and comfort can pull us out of submission to God by exploiting our desire to serve God. The things we yield submission to 
will have greater influence over us than the things we are put under. We are putting under certain things from governmental uh, forces. And they will have influence over you to a degree. But the greatest ones are the ones that you yield yourself to. And those are the ones you can completely control. So before we start complaining about all the things the government is doing to hinder our faith, what are we doing? Because those are the ones that are the greatest influences in your life. If you get them under control, you can be more like Daniel, that when government rose up and tried to change him, he had his his own submissions right. And so that wasn't even an issue for him. That's where we need to be. All right, let's keep going here. Here's the next one. What did we get through? Three? Number four here. I didn't number my list. <laughs> Condescension. Or, I put it this way, hostile thinking toward others will not bring beneficial change. Letting feelings born of unforgiveness like contempt, anger, bitterness, scorn, close or open doors on what and who you receive from. We've got to make sure we don't fall into that. Jesus taught that unforgiveness has a big role in hindering your prayers. Mark chapter eleven twenty five, And wherever, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. We've got to make sure that we get that forgiveness part taken care of because that is a huge hindrance to prayer. One of the few that's actually mentioned in the Bible. This will hinder your prayer. Condescension. Hostile thinking toward others will not bring beneficial change. You begin to look at other people. You may have all kinds of spiritual reasons why you're thinking hostile things to them, but it is not going to help you. you got to make sure that you don't have that. I don't mean that you can't get mad at anybody for anything. Jesus got mad at the Pharisees. Jesus got mad at people for certain things that they did, but then he always spoke to them in a way to help them. Make sure you follow the biblical examples we have in that. Here's the last one. Out of this last. I kept looking over this. I still think I'm missing something. It took me a long time to get the wording on this one right. I may still not have it right. But here it is. Self- Depreciation. Having a flaw-mindedness will not bring about perfected reality. Becoming so self-conscious of our flaws and shortcomings by comparing ourselves to others or things of our own imaginations. I think I should be this way. I think I should be here. This is what I think I should be doing. That's your own imaginations and you're comparing yourself to that. We can waste time beating ourselves up for them, and be riddled with thoughts of guilt and remorse. These will keep you stuck and unable to grow. So these are things we need to watch out for. Contrition, unrestrained sorrow will not bring change. Retribution, undisciplined focus will not bring productive change. Submission, detrimental yieldings will bring negative change. Condescension, hostile thinking toward others will not bring beneficial change. And finally, self-depreciation. Having a flaw-mindedness will not bring about perfected reality. Becoming mindful of your flaws does not help you get rid of them. 
But the enemy is constantly making us mindful of our flaws. What we need to do is be mindful of the things of the Spirit. The Word of God teaches us if you pursue the things of the Spirit, if you have the fruits of the Spirit in your life, these other things will fall away. These other things don't fall away because you will to stop them. They fall away because you pursue other things. And that's how we need to, to do this. You Put it this way. If your goal was to lose weight, you lose no weight standing in front of the mirror looking at all the imperfections in your body that you want to lose. The only way that you lose them is to go out and to do the things that you know to do, whether it be changing your diet, increasing your exercise, doing something like that. That's what changes it. As long as you stand in front of the mirror and look at the flaws and observe the flaws and feel bad about the flaws, remorse the flaws, you don't change anything. See, that's what the devil wants to get us to do. He wants you to stand in front of a spiritual mirror. He wants to give you things in your imagination. This is what you, a Christian should be. Look at this Christian over here. Look at how they are. You should be more like them. And we just keep looking in the mirror. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. I don't measure up. You don't know what another Christian is like. All you see is what they show you. You don't know the struggles that they have or the struggles they had gone through to get to where they are. All you need to compare yourself to is what the Lord Jesus Christ himself says. And if he comes to you and says, Steve, you see that thing over there? Knock it out. Get it out of your life. Move it. Don't sit around there and feel bad for yourself. Paul is such a great example for this. He didn't sit around feeling bad for himself for all the things he did. He picked himself up and he went. Peter didn't sit around and feel bad for himself because of all the things that he did with Jesus that weren't quite right. He moved forward. You have to let go of the things of the past. You can't change it. You have to let go of the idea of staring at your flaws is going to change them. That's the enemy. That's not a God consciousness bringing you to that. That's the enemy. Get away from the mirror and set out to change. You do that by growing in love. You grow in love, you will find that most of those flaws that you saw are just going to begin to fall off. And it'll be a whole lot less of an effort on your part. Father, we thank you for the example of the the Israelites, that there are some natural things that can hinder our faith as well as spiritual things, and you help us through not only the spiritual ones, but also the natural ones. And I thank you for how you do that. You are a glorious God. You are a loving God. You're not one who puts us under things. You're not one who condemns us. You're one who speaks to us, loves us, and grows us up. And I thank you for how you do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Any comments? Questions? Anything to add? Lamar says, I take from this that today, like back then, you make the decision to do what God says. Obedience is in following the details, not just the attitude of, that's good enough. Uh, Boy, is that not right. That attitude is very poor. That's good enough. Hmm. Good observation. All right. Well, thanks for coming out tonight and joining us online. We are up to the next chapter, I believe, chapter 12. And I have two more chapters to go. No, I'm sorry, we're in 10. 11, 12, and 13 are the last chapters here in Nehemiah. And then we'll be on to, to some other things. All right. You all have a good night.